Some years after the bloody establishment of the Edo period in Japan, wandering ronin Miyamoto Musashi resurfaced from obscurity in numerous victories and personal duels. Altogether at the time of his death, it is said that he won at least 60 engagements over a span of 59 years, but three duels in particular are widely regarded as truly legendary. Musashi first perfected the art of adaptive timing in combat. In 1604, during an agreed-upon exhibition using Bokudo's Yoshioka School Damyo Yoshioka Saijuro, was defeated with a single blow to the arm that left it broken and consequently sent the clan leader into exile as a Zen monk. Saijuro's brother, outraged at the resonant dishonor, challenged Musashi after assuming the right of his family's legacy. Yoshioka Denshichiro, holding a kakahara, waited patiently for Musashi at a Buddhist temple in the Higashiyama district of Kyoto. The kakahara is a long staff with brass rings whose English translation means monk staff and is said to have several practical uses outside of combat. For instance, it indicates the presence of monks in need of alms with the sound of the rings in the wind. And perhaps Denshichiro chose this not because of his mastery of the weapon, so much as it was a tribute to the disgraced memory of his brother. In any case, when Musashi finally arrived with his trusty Bokudo, Denshichiro fell at his hand with another single blow to the head. Now the burden of restoring Yoshioka Kenjutsu to prominence fell upon 12-year-old Mata Shichiro, whose desperation and inexperience was not lost upon those who now called him master. This time, the duel was set in dead of night, and immediately suspicious of his opponent's motives, Musashi arrived several hours earlier to scout the terrain. This time, he had left his bokudo behind, wielding his katana in its place. The young lord showed up not as early but before the scheduled hour, with many of his clan in tow, carrying rifles, bows, and arrows among them. The retainers hid away, those who had katanas held their hilts with the standard two-handed grip and waited as Matashichiro stood at the ready in full armor. When the moment was right and what would some misconstrue as a cowardly act but adequate in its execution nonetheless, Miyamoto Musashi sprang from the bushes and severed the boy's head with another single blow. He was quickly surrounded, now armed with both Matashichiro's sword and the one that took his head, Miyamoto survived the onslaught by cutting his way through the horde with equal parts accuracy and swiftness. And so was born the Nitu Ryu style of sword fighting. One common translation of Musashi's Kenjutsu style is two heavens, one dragon or spirit, illustrating the superiority of a warrior who can wield two swords at the same time or even one sword in either hand. In his titular publication, The Book of Five Rings, Musashi asks the reader a rhetorical question that bears a measure of further contemplation. When mastering the art of strategy and timing, he asks his pupils in the Book of the Earth. When you have reached this point, you will be able to defeat ten men as if they were one. Will it not mean that you are invincible?
membership of your little fucking corner store, the fuck out of here. So, but anyhow, that's yeah. I I I felt like like an empathy there because like I had never had that experience, and then I went over there. Like and now I know what that's like to have people fucking staring at you, fucking thinking the worst of you just because of your appearance. So it、mm-hmm. did give me more empathy. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's real shit. Well, you touched on it right there. I guess that's like one of the unifying factors of、uh, discrimination, no matter like what your skin color or your sex or gender or what have you.、Um, it's xenophobia. It's like a fear of change. Ultimately, is like the dividing factor amongst people. I feel like it's just—it's a basic fear of change,、um, and that's sad to me. Like living in a society that's supposed to be built on like contemporary concepts,、uh, new infrastructure,、uh, advances in technology, what have you.、Um, you would think that like we would be used to change at this point, but I mean, here we are. What 2020. X amount of million years, like into like evolution, and you know we've witnessed so much change as a fucking species, like over the course of our lifetime, and yet like little petty stuff like skin shade or like who we have, who we decide to fuck, <laughs> like that's the dividing factors because it's just something different. It's a, it's a, it's a fucking new world, and we're afraid of it.、It's、scary. No, we are. People are too lazy. Like we were saying earlier, people are too lazy to ask any questions or to have their beliefs challenged. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of stepping out of your comfort zone. And a lot of people don't want to do that.、Yeah. They get afraid of things they don't know, or they don't take the time to get to know somebody and ask them questions to get to know them as an individual. Instead, they just lump them into a category and react accordingly. So it's、yeah. just it's about laziness, intellectual laziness. There's a lot of that, and like you're saying, we're supposed to be in this country that's forward-thinking, that's multicultural, but yet we still have problems getting along with each other, with integrating new people, and and, and we're still going along. And we're still like, if you look at our country, we're still a young country. I, I mean, only 200 something years old. That's not that old. Right,、yeah. Joe Rogan had a great joke about it. Like America is like three people old, right? Like your your father, his great grandfather, right? It's just like three people. It's not that old. So we're still going along. We're still figuring it out, and hopefully, as we go forward, we'll get better. But we still have a lot of these issues, and we're still working through them. Obviously, as is being shown right now.
Motherfuckers, welcome to the Adjunct Crash Course. I'm your host, Luamba Flamingo, up in the place with my main man, Frankie Motherfucking Metro. We are going to bring you a podcast. It's a very varied, very varied podcast. We're going to have talk about all this stuff going on right now in America with the protest, with the racial issues. We will have some very interesting discussions with some biracial people, including myself and Mr. Metro, who are both biracial. We're also going to talk a little bit about ghosts. We're going to have a ghost story, and maybe even a ghost or two will appear on this podcast, possibly if you play this podcast on your device, a ghost will crawl into it and then come out and smack you across the face. I don't know if that will happen, but it is a possibility. And then we'll also talk a little bit about basketball, maybe have some other stuff. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope that Mr. Metro, I hope you are enjoying life over there in America. It seems like things are getting kind of interesting over there, sir. What do you say? That's like one way of putting it, like interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk on this program about ghosts. Uh, I go into discussion with that um, with uh, Gabriel Ricard and Kenyatta Garcia. Talk a little bit about race. Um, but I mean, honestly, if we're talking about ghosts coming back at some point during this episode, there's one ghost in particular I want to see come back, and that's the ghost of Kobe Bryant. Um, I'm looking at the stats here, bro, from the 2008 uh, U.S. Olympics when they won the gold medal against Spain. And uh, it's just incredible to watch, like, and I think me and you were talking about it, uh, like him competing with himself. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the mark of a true champion, I guess, is just, like, competing with yourself. And that's kind of, like, I take that kind of concept and that mindset into, like, painting and stuff like that. Like, um, I always try to live under the guidance that if I ever stop learning, if I ever stop trying to be better or bettering mm -hmm. myself, yeah, um, it's over. I'm not, like... I should just give it up. I should retire like Kobe Bryant did. Uh, I hope Kobe Bryant's ghost is hearing me right now, man. So, yeah. Oh, he is. 
he's totally hearing you because that's something that not a lot of people talk about. They talk about his other accomplishments as well they should. And of course, they've been talking about, sadly, what happened to him as well they should. But people don't talk about that 2008 Olympics enough, I don't think. And the Redeem team, what they did to bring USA basketball back to its glory. And we're going to need another one of those Redeem teams. I mean, shit, we just got our ass handed to us in the last international competition. So we need another Redeem team. And, uh, yeah, I wish Kobe could come back. And I think more people should talk about his performance in that Olympics. And I give you props for bringing that up because that's just something not a lot of people talk about, and they should be. There's, like, a really pinnacle point here where you see that he actually <clears throat> he trusts his teammates at the uh, most pivotal point in the series, the final round against Spain. Um, on the opposite team playing is his uh, Laker teammate, Pal Gasol, who is actually at the lead. Even playing at a center position as he was, he was still the leader of that team. And yet, uh, Mark Gasol, I think, was also playing for that team. And if anybody knows anything about Spain's basketball, uh, they are very fast-paced, um, and they like to shoot from the line a lot. It's like they try to bury you with uh, long-range jumpers. Um, and the United States Olympic team had to go up against that in the final round. You had all these emotions swirling around. And you see the interviews with some of the teammates um, about playing with Kobe during this series, and a lot of them say, like, he just took over. Like, he owned that series. Everything rode on his shoulders. And then you have other people that said that everybody had their glory moments um, during the eight games or what have you. But you look at this last game against Spain on uh, August 24th of 2008, and you have, I'll just, like, read some of the stats here. Kobe Bryant had made 27 points uh, total during that out of seven field goals. Um, He attempted 14 field goals of that, so he shot 50% that night. Um, He actually attempted three, or I'm sorry, eight three-pointers and made three of those. Um, made all three of his free throws, which was the only time during the series he made every free throw um, in this series. But what I really enjoy the most was this was the one game where he had the most assists. Um, Every game up to that, I think the most he had was three um, in the first game against China back on August 10th. But if you look at the final round against Spain, he actually had six assists, which means that he not only decided to I don't know, just be the Mamba that he was, but he also decided to really trust his teammates in that last round, and they went home with the gold medal, and I appreciate the fuck out of that. So, Oh, man, well, he was just a leader. He was just a leader, and he always knew when to shoot, and he knew when to pass it as well. He knew how to get his teammates involved when he needed to. He always did what he had to do to win, and that's what the great ones do. They know what they have to do, what course of action to take in the critical moments, and he was just that guy. He could be that guy that could just go off like a machine gun and just fucking shoot 40 shots when he needed to, when his team needed that, or he could be that guy to pass it to Shaq. He could be that guy to pass it off to his teammates in the big game. It sort of reminds me, when you're talking about it, it sort of reminds me a bit of Jordan when he 
had that famous game in the garden, like shortly after he came back to the league, he dropped 55. And everybody talks about how he dropped 55, as they should. But nobody really talks about how he passed the ball off to Big Bill Wennington in the yeah. last minute or the last seconds. And then Bill Wennington hit that fucking game winning shot. A lot of people don't talk about that. So, like, they might, like you're saying with Kobe. You know, his stat line there, a lot of people aren't going to talk about that assist number. And, no. and they should because he, he he was a guy who could chuck it off and trust his teammates when he needed to. Like Jordan, I think he got an unfair rap as a ball hog, as being selfish, but he really wasn't. He shot because he needed to. That's what his team needed to have. They needed that guy who was going to go out there. He was a shooting guard. That's what a shooting guard does. He shoots. So any of you assholes out there calling him selfish or a ball hog, fuck you because he was a shooting guard. And that's what you need from your shooting guard. You need him to score. And that's what he did. But he could also pass it off when he needed to. And he believed and he challenged his teammates all the time. He was a beast in every single way. Yeah. I dare say that um, from what you're I mean, and it was a very poignant description of Kobe Bryant's skill set, by the way, sir. Um, and just to clarify, it was actually 20 points that he made in that eighth game. I didn't want to clarify that. Kobe Bryant's ghost should come back and leave the country. Just saying. Um, so if you're up there listening, Kobe, uh, can we get one more? It's all on one, bro. Just one more. <laughs> oh, man, I would vote for Kobe Bryant's ghost. Put him yeah. on the ballot. I vote for Kobe Bryant's ghost. For reals. For reals. Yeah, word is bond. Word is bond, man. Rest in peace to Mr. Bryant. had an affinity for breakdancing since I was young, but never possessed the ambition to learn. Stan Lee is dead and there's snow on the ground. New Mexico is threatening me with veiled thin ice and a location order. And all these revelations are mixing up an auto-tuned silence when I leap from one frozen crosswalk to the next, slip, land on my ass, and six-step like an amateur skateboarder. By the time my pants dry and my downrocked pride returns, it's only 6.30 p.m. and pitch black outside. I go to sleep early the night before I call these people back and find out how bad they want to kick my door in. I fall out dreaming of a cult that exists within the confines of an abandoned bingo hall littered with clean-sized mattresses and single-serving cotton blankets that cover the members from head to toe. All their blankets are turquoise, and inside is a self-made world of free worship with smartphone ports, isolation, form-fitting technology, and frequent naps. When I spring from my final resting place and see that all the clocks say 1.52, I question whether I've built a time machine, and frantically look for a phone to call the appropriate agencies before the final bill comes due, and these fucking pigs show up at my new job and get me fired when they try and fail 
to escort me off the property to a nearby cruiser. I am not, I repeat, will not be in prison or compromised by debt or my impoverished state ever again. I can't express this enough, it's freedom or death for me. There's three weeks until my lease ends, white gospel power ballads are playing in the back of a dispensary that hasn't seen a fresh face since 8 a.m. There's no foot traffic in this gentrified tourist trap, but a voice on the radio makes unrealistic comparisons to the resurrection of Christ, proclaiming that they too can leave the grave behind. I came home with potential hypothermia in my hands and feet the night before. I was thinking of a single dad who runs a convenience store with a baby in the back room, lulled to sleep by Mama Shush Records, and that seemed, I don't know, too breathy to be comforting. I was joking that I aimed to twist my ankle standing in my comfort zone, but there's so many more conspiracy theories in the bedroom than I thought there would be that Prodigy ain't choke on no egg. That was the Illuminati. I can leave the grave behind. Long enough to consider my options here, I either let my ears bleed collecting idle trichomes on my fingertips, hope I notice and deal with conflicting personalities like I understand responsibility takes precedent over wounded pride, or start practicing this six-foot-deep high-wire act with a gusto and faith found in this maraca-shaking, omniscient, broken chorus. Fred's personal change plan comes off the heels of fighting depression. It comes from his addiction to pain medication. He was unemployed when he met a girl in a bar with a rich accent and a pocket full of drugs. 
Terry's just as friendly as last week, revealing he's a landlord and how important it is we all take care of our responsibilities during times like these. Matthew and his son have spent some quality time together in between deadlifting 245 pounds and asking about adopting a dog from the shelter, he puts 415 pounds on the bar and concedes to his son. Fred's spine is infused with titanium. Eric's been making 10-course meals and blasting his entrees on social media. The cook with a gun is leaving Friday after Eric gave his boss the it's him or me ultimatum. Kim's been afraid to go to the park because of anti-Asian sentiment. On Sunday, he decided to stay home and enjoy the sun in his parking lot from the safety of his kitchen window. He says people should be able to enjoy the sunlight, that people should blame the CCP for the pandemic and not the Chinese people. Malik is uninvolved but wants Bob to know he's playing attention. He's trying to reduce his sense of entitlement. Fred says we all respond to drugs and alcohol in different ways. He married that girl from Australia on a beach in Fiji. Had to do a border run every three months or so, and this is all a big challenge for him. His personal change plan devolves. He's never held accountability. And when he was living in Sydney, he was living without goals. His son was born in 2008.
because I'm so fucking sick of slut shaming. I got to mm-hmm. say, I'm so fucking sick of that phenomenon. I think it's bullshit. Why is it that a dude can go out and bang all these chicks, but then a girl, she bangs some dudes and somehow she's a slut. She fucks just one guy. Somehow she is a slut. I think that is fucked up. And if you're with a girl, like, why do you care who she was with before? How does that affect you, right? You're with her. You two are together. You should just enjoy your time with her. Our time is so fucking limited. We're here on this planet, if we're lucky, for, what, 80 years, right? That's not that long in the greater scheme of things, right? So just cherish that time. Be with that person and let that person do what they want to do. As long as it's consensual, people are of age, let them do what they want to do. And why do people care how many dudes a girl has been with how does that affect you if that's your girl that you're with now or just somebody you're with like how does that affect you i think it's bullshit i think it's total bullshit uh man like i I definitely uh see where you're coming from there man and um i've actually have a different view about like slut shaming i take it um from the stance of it being a double standard sometimes and being in a position where um recently i've been slut shamed I, I think it happens to men too and i know that's like kind of a hard position to take but like i'll explain a little bit um i was recently in a polyamorous relationship for the better part of like two years um one of the things that i had to get used to in this polyamorous relationship was the fact that my uh, significant other had a partner for like a long-standing partner while i um was like seeing a lot of people. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I ended up seeing at the end of everything a lot of people, um, and not really ever finding any sort of connection or anything like uh, my partner had with like their significant other. And um, I guess like one of the things that's been bugging me lately is like we actually made an attempt recently, as uh, recent as a couple of days ago, to try to. Um, like mend some bridges and just try to like find a new state of things. But there's still like this whole like uh, bout of dishonesty between us and uh, miscommunication. So ultimately we just decided that's not going to work out, I guess. Um, the big thing for me though, during the course of these two days has been the uh, consistent slut shaming that I've gotten from my ex. 
um, she has like made it uh, kind of like, I don't want to go too much into detail, but she does like to remind me of how many women that I've slept with in the course of our polyamorous um, engagement. And I find it a little hard to take. Like every time she talks about it, it makes me feel like I have to take a shower. Um, so I definitely understand what women go through like when they hear that, I don't know if I get it to the degree that women do, obviously. Like, I feel like they experience that like on a more general level, like than I do, obviously, but I definitely feel like there have been, and I touched on this in the discussion with Shayla and um, Ariel on the last episode. Like I have definitely experienced moments of being sexually harassed and have felt either conflicted about talking about it because of being a man or what have you, or um, didn't really know what to, how to process it. And that's one of the disturbing factors to me is like when these girls are in the moment of like being slut shamed or uh, what have you, um, like just the confusion and like the, the like discontent that it causes like in the moment when that shit is happening to you and how that like resonates with you like days or weeks after, like here I am two days later or whatever, still talking about this bullshit and still thinking about it. And I definitely, I definitely um, empathize with women that experience that. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucked up. It's, it's really fucked up. And I think that people just need to get past that bias. People need to just let that shit go. When you're with a person, if you're in a monogamous relationship, of course, if they go and cheat on you, you're going to be devastated. You're going to be hurt, of course, right? But if you're in some kind of polyamorous relationship with a person, you have to accept that they're going to go bang other people. And whether that's one person or 20 people, that's just what they're going to do. And if you're not ready for that, or if you want to have that relationship, then I think maybe you need to set that parameter though, right? So if if you're going to be in that relationship with that person, then you two can sit down and talk about it and say, well, hmm, okay, you're with one other person. Is that the limit? Or is it just whoever you want to be with? Maybe you set some of those parameters up so that you avoid those kind of conflicts later, I guess. Mm I've not been in a polyamorous relationship, so I, I don't really know how to talk about that, but that would be my guess on how to, to set a relationship like that up. But generally, yeah, like you were saying too about the sexual harassment thing, that is something that happens to men and, and, and it is an issue. It is an issue. And in fact, there was an incident just recently on a plane with an NFL football player where he was basically attacked by a middle-aged woman. And he wound up suing the airline over this because they didn't even do anything. They didn't even stop it. And he's like this big dude. And and then it puts – it's this weird situation, right? Because, yeah, you're not in as much physical danger. Unless it's like somebody like some UFC chick or something like that. Then you might be in some trouble, right? Amanda Nunes is trying to fucking rape you. You're in some fucking trouble. She's going to beat your ass and take that ass, right? You don't want to fuck with that. But – like generally a dude is not going to be in the physical danger from a woman. Right. So if this girl is like coming up to you and grabbing your ass and that's happened to me, I've had that happen to me 
here in Thailand, there's some very aggressive lady boys, bar girls who will come up and literally grab your dick. Grab it. Yeah, I know. Your ass. Yep. Yep. That shit has happened to me. Just walking down the street, a girl fucking comes up, grabs your fucking ass or your balls and tries to fucking pull you in to their bar. Right. And that shit is, that's fucked up because what do you do in that situation? And and you're not in a physical danger because you could just push her away. But then also you are being fucking harassed and it's fucking creepy. It's fucked up for a person to put their hands on you in a private place. And you don't want that. That's fucked up. Uh, it's real talk. I mean, honestly, I've, uh, I was th- <laughs> I was talking about this today um, with one of my coworkers. There's a line in a Kid Cudi song about like giving somebody the Will Smith slap. And it's a reference to a moment during an interview um, where Will Smith was like talking and some guy like leaned up and tried to kiss him. And he like just kind of like tapped the dude on the mouth, like kind of like backhanded him, like slapped him. And it was like, obviously, like that's fucked up. But like at the same time, he was being sexually harassed, too. You know what I'm saying? Like this is a fine line in America. And obviously, you know, genders like biases apply here. Um, but I mean, fuck, we all just need to like start respecting each other a little bit more and like not go for the balls or something. I literally had, I was working at this pizza place here, uh, when I first moved here and, uh, like I had these two like middle-aged, like, let's just call them what they are. They were cougars. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, like I had them like hitting on me like hardcore. It was like 2 a.m. They're fucking shit drunk. It's downtown Denver or whatever, you know? And then, like, fucking this girl, like, had me come, I come around to give her a pizza, and, like, she, like, like, you're talking about, like, grabs me by the dick, pulls me in, like, kisses me in front of everybody, and then pulls me into the back room and tries to get me to, like, make out with her, like, while I'm on the fucking, like, shift. And it was, like, fucking jarring, bro. I was, like, I ended up, like, having to clock out and go home just because I was, like, kind of, like, shook, (laughs) like, everything, just... It brought back, like, weird fucking, like, memories that I don't care to, like, really step into. And fucking, I think that's, like, one thing in, like, society is uh, we don't consider um, how the other person's feeling in, like, these, like, weird, like, engagements, I guess. Like, sex is, like, always, like, one of these um, social contracts that, like... um, like almost like breeds like general awkwardness you know what i'm saying and if you feel like any sort of awkwardness in the situation like and read people's body language i think that's key you know what i'm saying but like if you feel that i don't i feel like no matter if you're a man or a woman if you make a move on somebody and you can physically tell that they're not comfortable or they're not ready or they're not expecting it it's fucking wrong so that's how i feel about it It was a weekend in March when my wife went to the UNM urgent care facility for a persistent migraine. She was examined in triage and rushed to the ER showing symptoms of spinal meningitis. Before the incident, the most time I had stayed at home was after finding a bed bug crawling up my shirt at work. The company gave me three days off without repercussion with pay and even sent truly Nolan pest control to my apartment to check for any infestations. None were found, thank God. Apparently a co-worker had previously brought in the early makings of a colony 
and the issue wasn't noticed until a routine pest inspection came by her cubicle and saw the bugs crawling all over her chair. Presbyterian tried their best to keep publicity at the issue contained, and to this day I'm not sure if the citizens of Albuquerque know that the main hospital downtown also had the same problem at the time. My wife spent five days in the hospital before being assured that since she had contracted a viral in place of bacterial strain, that further hospitalization would not be necessary. Thankfully, she had Centennial Care, Medicaid, or otherwise we'd be looking at a hefty medical bill for her stay. I myself am still uninsured and working for an insurance company. I felt more than a little paranoid that the Obama administration was just lying in wait to find me for it. And when I came back to work, I was not advised that my attendance was an issue. Being a temporary employee, I was even asked if I wanted to apply for a permanent position. I'd already tried once before, but the star, situation, task, action, result, formatting of the questions threw me off and I didn't get the job. This time, I advised my supervisor that considering my wife's medical problems and my own dilemma, the fact that taking a permanent position may impede on my time off requests, once you go permanent there's only PTO, I was assured that he understood and I didn't hear any more about it save for the occasional mass email informing us that there were permanent listings on the website. My hair had grown longer since the last encounter with security, becoming a strange fixation for some of my coworkers. I'd just been assigned to provider care unit training, which was a step up for me and meant that I would be primarily dealing with doctors, nurse practitioners, and billing office reps directly as opposed to members. I was very excited about the new job, and on the morning in question, I walked the two-mile sidewalk in front of the building with an overwhelming sense of confidence that this was an actual career. Something I thought would only happen for me had I finished college. I was wearing a black hoodie near the mountains where my office was located. It was still very cold outside at 7.30 a.m. and sunglasses. My hair stuck out from the hood at the top because of sheer volume. I was wearing crisp old navy tan dockers, a Calvin Klein long sleeve button up and brown nautical slip on loafers. I was in full compliance with Presbyterian stipulations about business casual attire. I walked to my usual spot in the smoking section and per policy kept my work badge covered while I smoked and watched the sun rise over the mountains. I had my headphones on at the time. So when the security guard walked up to me with his inquisitive glare, I naturally ignored him for the first few seconds until I saw his mouth moving. Do you work here? Yeah. Let me see your badge. I unzipped my hoodie and held it out for him to inspect. Inspect again. Inspect one more time and make snide faces at what I can only perceive was the badge's validity. Okay? Okay. Why'd you ask to see my badge? Got a call about a suspicious character fitting your description. Just following up. It's just procedure. Well, obviously I work here. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. He walked away chuckling to himself. Over what? I wasn't sure. And it's not even like a like a 
social awareness thing. Like it just, I just never thought it was a very good movie. I also just don't give a shit about the Civil War. Yeah. No, I mean, like at this point, it's kind of like a moot point almost, like talking about the Civil War. And then, like, having these movies still in the canon, like, Gone with the Wind or whatever, it's almost just like, we're talking about ghosts and stuff a lot, it's almost like just fucking living with ghosts all the time. Do you think, um, let me ask, let me ask you this, um, because I read about this recently, and I don't know a lot about it, so I was, so I've been, um, curious. Um, it is said that the, um, uh, the trauma of slavery is, is, is being passed down in the DNA of, 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 of black people in America. Mm-hmm. What do you think? What do you think of that? It's totally legit, man. Uh, I mean, there's still times where I like, for instance, I had, there's a thing about me where I have like, um, like I get really pensive around strangers, especially like uh, white strangers. Um, in certain social situations, especially, um, like I write riding public transit all the time. Um, I'll find myself in situations, for instance, where like the bus is coming and I'll be waiting to get on and like, I'll see like this older white person, like walk up just now walk up. And I've been waiting for the bus for like 15 minutes or whatever. And this person just strolls right up and tries to cut in front of me to get on the bus first. And I get aggressive because I will not let a white person like step in front of me i i get overly aggressive about it for some reason I, and yes yeah and it's fair yeah no i mean that's uh, legit it's a good question no i you know i don't fucking know um jesus christ um we live we live facing a very 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 busy street mm-hmm. uh, when we moved in we found a pet cemetery to the side of the house I was like, that's fair. It's like, it's like outside my parents' house. Um, no, I read it. I didn't, I just, I thought that was, I guess, morbidly interesting. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find myself, especially like in the area that I work in, like running into these situations, like the, where I work at, it's like one of the last um, dispensaries that you'll like see before you get to places like Castle Rock, uh, Monuments. Um, Colorado Springs, which is like a hotbed for KKK. That's actually where David Duke like really took off. Um, you guys have seen black. You've seen black, right? So, um, and you have a lot of clients. We have a lot of clientele that just get like fresh off the golf course and they want to like buy some weed so they can go home and watch golf and like make racist commentary about like all the minorities that they've seen on the golf course or something. Um, and the staff at my dispensary there's and this is one of the first times that i've experienced this and i i love it uh, there's a, like at least five of us that work there that are biracial um and i love it um that's, i feel that's awesome. you know like i feel like um like a lot of times when i go to work or whatever i find myself in the minority obviously but like at my current job i i'm not the minority and it feels good for the most part but there are times where I will have like clients come in, for instance, and I say clients and they're really not, they're just fucking potheads. And um, like they come in and like this one guy came in the other day and it was me and my uh, coworker, two of my coworkers that uh, look like they're biracial. 
and we all are like light complected or whatever. And the guy was dealing with my um, coworker, and he stepped away from him to weigh up some weed for him. And this guy's like wandering around. And I swear to God, I felt like he got like ethnic blindness for a minute just because another white person came up and talked to him for a second. And he lost track of like which minority was he was talking to or something. I don't know. And <laughs> he like he walks over to me and I'm sitting there like doing stuff on inventory. And uh, he walks over to me and he like puts a lighter on the counter. And he's like, yeah, and I think I'll take this lighter, too. And I look up at him and I already know what he's doing. And I look up at him. And I'm like, yeah, um, you can go ahead and tell your butt tender that over there and he looks over and he goes dude oh my god i totally thought you were the same person and i'm like yeah i kind of picked up on that and i was like no we're not and my co-worker walked up at the same time and he's like let me guess you guys are brothers <laughs> and we both looked at him and we were like no and he's like you sure man you guys aren't related somehow and we were like no man we're not and I looked at him and I was like, I have to walk away from you right now before I say something that's going to get me fired. And I walked away. <laughs> and like, I run into those kind of situations all the time, um, which makes me like hyper vigilant. And that is the trauma that I feel like was passed down from slavery is the hyper vigilance that we still feel in contemporary society because of. So this is a fictional story. However, there are some non-fictional elements to it. Although some people might consider those non-fictional elements fictional as well, depending on where you are on the spectrum of ghosts. There are several different ghost stories here in Bangkok and really all over Thailand. And Thai culture ghosts are a very big part of the culture here you will see outside of pretty much any house or business or on any side street you will see at least one spirit house and the spirit house is where ties believe they can basically keep their ghosts uh, where they will honor the ghosts in that area and these ghosts might be people who lived there before these might be ancestors and you'll see people go out in the morning and pray to the spirit house. They'll bring offerings of fruit, juice, fake money, stuff like that, and place it in front of the spirit house to honor these ancestors or these ghosts. And they also feel like the ghosts will stay within that spirit house and not come into your house. And also out here, uh, along the threshold of a lot of doors. It's built so that the threshold is a bit high and you have to step over it a bit because they believe that spirits travel in a straight line. And if you have kind of a high threshold for your door, it will stop the spirits from coming inside. So they have their ways to try to keep the ghosts out of your house and contained in the spirit house and so on. But there's still sometimes when ghosts can get into a house, sometimes ties will refuse to enter a house because they believe that it is possessed by ghosts. They are very afraid of ghosts. 
And there's a very famous story here just recently. It was made into a movie about some teenagers who went into an abandoned house, which is believed to be haunted. And then uh, it was seven of them all together, and I believe five of them died in separate auto accidents. And it's sort of like a final destination kind of thing, where it's believed that this group is cursed because they disturbed this house. And there's still two of them who are alive, and of course they are scared shitless, and they believe that any day they might die. And allegedly, this house is possessed by a malevolent spirit. There are different spirits here. There are malevolent spirits. There are kind spirits. There are just random spirits roaming around. Some that are just sort of a nuisance that will appear and maybe scare people or maybe not. Scare others. Some people here believe that they can see, they can talk to ghosts, and there's really just a, a very wide array of different stories. And so I took a few of these stories that I had read、uh, about that house, about certain areas around here, buildings, landmarks that are allegedly haunted. I took those. I combined some of those stories. I changed a couple things around. I put in a few of my own things, and I combine those into the story that you will hear on this podcast. The story: Do you believe in ghosts? And then I also put in a little bit of the social media stuff and a little bit of a parody of that and about celebrity culture in America and the West. So it's very much a combination of the two things. Do you believe in ghosts? By Nwamba Flamingo. I told you, Jeff. I'm a skeptic. I've traveled the world, been to the sites of war crimes, genocides, murders, hotel fires, and I've not once, not once, seen a ghost. My offer still stands. One million dollars to anyone who can prove to me that ghosts exist. Look, Mister Palmer, call me Jay. He interrupted. Jay, you didn't get to be a wealthy man by being gullible. But Jay interrupted again. He cut the flattery. You're saying that you can show me ghosts in Bangkok, and I say is bullshit. The offer stands. Show me a ghost. I'll show you one million dollars. My secretary will email you my Bangkok itinerary. We'll be in touch. And with that, the call cut off. For a couple of years, I've been following Mr. J. Palmer on Twitter, and have been enthralled, entertained, and annoyed at his tweets. No stranger to fame or controversy, the handsome young billionaire, the Wall Street hedge fund star, had once been heralded as the next Warren Buffett. He had originally achieved fame for his business acumen, but these days was known more for his brash, outspoken personality and relentless ridicule of the supernatural, ghosts in particular, as well as his tendency to engage in social media spats, often with other celebs and sometimes even random commenters. I'd seen that Mr. Palmer. 
along with his starlet girlfriend, would be in Vietnam on business. So I tweeted him, thinking he'd probably ignore me. But, to my astonishment, he'd replied, and we'd exchanged direct messages, then phone calls, and I challenged him to visit the haunted sites of Bangkok, which includes my street, and afterwards see if he still doubted the existence of ghosts. He'd taken me up on my challenge, and I'd be seeing him in less than 48 hours. As for me, I wholeheartedly believe in ghosts. I've seen plenty, been accustomed to their presence since I was a teenager. I'd seen several spirits in my childhood home in Pittsburgh. The first I saw were tiny balls of light floating around and through the ceiling of my bedroom. Later, I'd see misty silhouettes of human forms on the staircase by the living room. There'd also routinely be doors closing, opening unexplainably around the house. My sister, too, had seen the blobs of light flying through the ceiling in her room, but my parents refused to believe the ghosts were there. But I knew, and my sister knew, and the ghosts, they knew, and that was enough for me. Fortunately, the ghosts of my house were not malicious spirits. They were only present, remnants of the former owners probably. Such is usually the case when one lives in a 100-year-old house. I never feared them, those ghosts, and simply accepted them as fellow occupants of the dwelling. For as long as I can remember, ghosts have fascinated me. I have always enjoyed ghost stories, movies, books, more for the entertainment factor, history lessons, though, that they held. The stories, the ghosts, never scared me, really. More so, I pitied the ghosts and wondered if the ghosts in my house or the ghosts in the stories knew if they were ghosts. What a tragedy to be a ghost and not know it. When I first came to Bangkok as a tourist, I was delighted to discover the city held such strong beliefs in ghosts. The welcoming, warm, and friendly Thai people, plus the climate, the hot weather, and the scrumptious, hot and spicy food agreed with me and I decided to ditch the corporate world and stay in Thailand, in Bangkok. For the last seven years, it's where I've been. I've left only for border runs to Cambodia and Laos to renew my visas. My first job in Thailand, like many expats here, was teaching English. But then I found my way into another more exciting and lucrative business, paranormal tours and videos. Along with my Thai partner, Somchai, we started the business as a side hustle, but it had expanded well enough that we were able to turn it into a full-time gig. Our tours consisted of taking clients out around Bangkok to local haunted sites, 
at night. And we made videos of these ghost tours that we'd post online, share on social media, video recordings of real footage of paranormal activity. Our tours were provided on motorcycles, one driven by Somshai, one by me, and perhaps additional drivers if we had a larger group. Motorcycles sure aren't the safest method of transport, but it's the fastest way of getting around Bangkok, given the perpetually gridlocked city traffic. Occasionally, though, we'd take clients out in a car if they were too squeamish to sit on the backseat of a motorcycle, or if they demanded AC.
itinerary included several spots. Many provided entertaining spooky tales, but not actual ghost sightings. However, the Sakorn unique tower, Wat Don Cemetery, and the curve of 100 corpses, these were the most reliable 
Bangkok locations to spot paranormal activity, especially the Wat Don Cemetery. Practically every trip we took there yielded a ghost sighting or two. In the cemetery, a place where over 10,000 victims of accidents were buried, many in unmarked graves, we'd often see Tai Hong, which is Thai for an angry ghost, one that died in a sudden, tragic manner. The Tai Hong we most frequently saw was a headless ghost that had fall from a tree, crawl on its stomach like an alligator, and disappear into dead air. One time a ghost appeared in Somchai's car in the back seat, the ghost bloody, missing limbs, screaming in agony. A couple German clients sitting next to it freaked out, yelling and demanding us to pull over, and when we did, they ran away, tearing off running into the crowded Bangkok streets. Somchai said a prayer that let the ghost out back into the night. After that, Somchai bought a special green jade amulet from a monk, and the amulet has since prevented ghosts from entering his car, though recently we found a legless ghost on the roof, and Somchai said a blessing that allowed it to leave. The Sakorn Tower was a hot spot too for ghosts. We'd often find ghosts of businessmen jumping from upper floors, reenacting their suicides. Somchai said they were trapped in repeat, in a purgatory of sorts, having to jump again and again until they were able to pass on to the next realm. Or maybe they were being punished, forced to relive their suicide because of the bad karma they had created. In addition to the jumpers, we could also, via telescope, spot the ghost of a middle-aged Swedish man, a tourist, hanging by a noose from a ceiling pipe. You could see him hanging lifeless there practically every night. Occasionally, we could bribe a security guard to enter the building, have a look around, but never were we able to see the ghosts up close. The ghosts there seemed to prefer keeping their distance, only staying visible from afar. The curve of 100 corpses, an infamous intersection in Bangkok where many died in traffic accidents. That area yielded many sightings too, mostly ghosts on motorcycles who were lost in those traffic accidents. Somchai said that those ghosts were also in a purgatory, riding around the same roads until they could pass. He said it was because their family members might not have performed the correct funerary rites, or that the ghosts were too angry to accept they died, refusing to believe it continuing to ride back and forth along the same stretch of road every day and night. I'd wondered, too, if some of the office workers I'd seen in subways 
rush hour traffic back in America were suffering the same fate. I got a fucking grievance. I got a fucking grievance. I got a grievance for people wanting to see Mike Tyson fight. Mike Tyson, the dude is 53 years old. 53 years old. Why do you want to see a 53-year-old man fight anyone? Do you want to see him get killed, brain damaged? And then bare knuckle fighting, the bare knuckle fighting league is trying to get him to fight in a bare knuckle boxing match. Are you fucking crazy? What is wrong with you people? It is sick. Look, this is not 1988. This is not 1998 or even 2008 or even 2018. It's 20. 20, right? Enough with the nostalgia. Mike Tyson is 53 years old. Why do you want to see him fight? Enough with the nostalgia. This is just like people who want to see a Guns N' Roses reunion. Why do you want to see that? It's embarrassing and it's sad. This is even worse, though, than a Guns N' Roses reunion, which is just fucking sad because this guy could get himself killed. No, no Mike Tyson fights. All right. It's over. It's done. Let him do his podcast, which is fucking awesome. And stop trying to see him fight. And yes, there's some Australian out here in Thailand who wants to bring him to fucking Thailand to fight. And I say to that Australian, I say, Fuck you, man. Stop trying to make him fight. Stop trying to profit off his name. Leave him alone. That's my fucking grievance. conversations with many women about how it's easy to smile through it all to the point you're gritting your teeth in public and grinding them in your sleep. I suddenly realize how many times within a given month I'm liable to use the term epigenetic to describe someone else, no matter their proximity or affiliation. Her cough terrified me. Throughout the night she had violent fits that lasted so long at one point she walked outside after smoking a joint in the back with some poets I had introduced myself to or were too afraid to approach. Margie's stories about buying one-way Greyhound tickets of art events and selling her book to buy her way back home were fodder for my waning dedication to my own craft. It's grounded in the notion that there was no way I'd be able to do something like that or say Henry Miller and quit my job at 40-whatever to ultimately rely on those who appreciate my work to carry me along. 
My trail was a series of burned bridges at menial jobs for minimum pay and the bill-funded, form-fitting casket that waits at the end. And maybe I felt justified with this self-made, impoverished state at the time. After all, his story is that of yet another white cis male whose entitlement afforded him more opportunities than his counterparts. Marjorie, on the other hand. FM here with my fucking main man, Nuamba Flamingo, and we're wrapping up uh, this episode, episode three, actually, of Adjunct Podcast. Jesus Christ, I am way too fucking high for this. Adjunct Crash Course on Anchor. Um, tonight, we actually talked a little bit about ghosts. We talked a little bit about Kobe Bryant, uh, Kobe Bryant as a ghost for president. Uh, we also went a little bit in depth um, about uh, ghosts in Thailand, uh, racism, which isn't a ghost, really. It's just so fucking tangible at this point. Um, I guess next week we're going to try to divert our attention away from the fucking trash fire that's outside everybody's window and talk about making the first move and the correlations of sex and death. Um, also, we'll be. Dipping more into dream interpretation, uh, specifically red vicious dogs and dreams. Maybe talk about Tinder dates uh, and how those things correlate. Uh, sex shops and fetishism. Maybe those are topics on the next show. Uh, Ariel, our correspondent, I guess, would, would say. Uh, she actually has some really great anecdotes about uh, sex shops in Japan. So we're definitely looking forward to hearing about that. Uh, Utagawa Kunayoshi woodblock prints. Uh, we'll also be uh, talking a little bit more about, yeah, I don't know, man. Wrestling, professional sports, uh, and shout outs. Speaking of shout outs, Iwamba, you got some shout outs for us today, bro? Oh, I sure do. I want to give a shout out to everybody out there who's peacefully protesting. I want to give a shout out to them. I want to give a shout out to everybody who's out there making their voice heard in a very positive way. Now, I mean, I remember you and I were talking about it a little bit before that some of these people, uh, maybe like, where the fuck were they five years ago? Where the fuck were they 20 years ago? They should have been out there. And I agree with that. But at least they're out there now. And maybe I'm hoping with this thing that it's going to be a watershed moment. There's going to be real change. It's going to put cops on blast. You can't just go out and strangle a motherfucker in the street anymore, you cocksuckers. And then I also want to give a shout out to the cops out there joining the protests. We have never seen that before. I have never seen that before. Cops showing solidarity with the protesters. Even some cops coming out and making public statements saying, hey, this just isn't acceptable. We can't have this. So I'm hoping that 
this really does bring change. And it's just so heartening to see these cops joining in on it. And as much as I fucking hate the vice cops, I hate cops who bust people for drugs and cops who fucking bully people. I hate those motherfuckers. I want them gone. Fuck every single one of those motherfuckers. Fuck every single one of those cops who fucked up George Floyd and killed him. I hope they fucking put all those bastards under the fucking jail. Fuck every fucking one of those motherfuckers. But, you know, a lot of cops are decent, hardworking folks. I mean, that's a tough fucking job, right? You got to go out. You got some fucking drunk redneck on a porch beating his wife. You got pedophiles. You got fucking murderers. You got rapists. You got some nasty ass, slimy bastards in this world. And we need the cops. We need somebody to come out and pull away that pedophile and fucking throw him in jail. We need that shit. We need motherfuckers to help. I think we fucking need them. And I I, I just love the fact that they're coming out and they are showing solidarity. I just want people to come together from this, man. And I just gotta—I just want to give a shout out of love to all those people who are fucking coming together. And so many of the media outlets are just showing the looting and the fighting and stuff. And yeah, some of that shit's happening, but they're not showing you the love, man. And I've been seeing a lot of love. I've been hearing about a lot of love. People bringing food to each other. People just getting together. And so I just—it's just—it's just beautiful, man, to see that kind of that kind of atmosphere. And I know it's a fucking trash fire, right? It's a fucking trash fire, but I'm just hoping some fucking change comes from this. And, and I just, I love to see like, people coming together because we just don't have enough of that. So that's my shout out to everybody out there making their voice heard in a peaceful and beautiful way. message uh but like sometimes we don't agree on everything you know what i'm saying and like yeah. one of the segments of the episode was like uh we ended with like shout outs and he gave a shout out to everybody in the movement and stuff like that and like i don't know how you feel about this stuff but i like i'm like it's too little too late for me white mm. america you know what i'm saying oh, okay yeah, yeah. I, I was just kind of talking to a friend about that. Like, I, I don't really want to hear but so much from white people right now on this. Yeah. Like, oh, a long time. <laughs> yeah. Like, how long did it take for people to get to this point is what I was thinking about. It's taken over 400 years. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
And like, for me, it's like, all right. So if you're a white person, like around my age, so like you're in your forties, like early forties, it's like, you could have been upset since like Rodney King on. Thank you. Yes. Like 30 years. Yeah. That's what I've been saying. I've literally been saying that people should have been upset since Rodney King, like for the last few days. So, yeah. Yeah. So like I, I've been flipping out and like uh, not want just simply not want to listen. And people are like, you know, we have to have a conversation and get this done. I was like, I don't have to have any conversation. Like, I'm sorry. I don't need to talk to anybody. I don't need to listen to anybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everybody wants to listen all of a sudden. And it's like you. Yeah, how many people did it take like dying senselessly for these people to like all of a sudden pay attention? And my friend was just talking about it. He was saying that it's and i i totally believe this too is like it's just because you know it's correlates with everybody being like locked up during the pandemic and everybody's like out of work and needs something to stand behind and they just pick the black lives matter movement at this moment and that sucks it makes me upset as a person of color in this country that like my plight um in america is just seen as something as like oh this is a hobby or it's a trend it's a social uh agenda trend that's gonna pass um with the next like major catastrophe that happens in the news or some shit oh that that's i definitely have some some feelings similar to that because i'm like this could have been eric garner could have been michael brown any like you know like last time only Ferguson went wild, you know, and like, and people didn't get that mad about it, you know, but I think, yeah, because everybody's stuck at home and everything that now they can like rally behind something. And it's an election year too, which kind of wants people to like, makes people want to talk a bunch of stuff. I I feel like uh, we were just, uh, we were talking on one of these previous episodes about how um like during uh, every major election year there's like some sort of fucking like major catastrophe or some shit like that um I, and it's sad to think about how many times i think you're talking about like eric gardner i think about like uh sandra bland i think about trayvon martin oh I yeah think about, i think about little bobby hutton whose death started like whose death necessitated the rise of the black Panther party. And I love the black Panther party. I respect the fuck out of them. I love, I I've, I've like gone and listened to Aaron Dixon speak and like, who is like the Seattle um, president chapter. Like I really respect the fuck out of those guys. I, I follow Eldridge Cleaver's uh, book, soul on ice. I mean, apart from all the homophobia and misogyny in there. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of that. But like, you know, that's like, it bothers me that when I see these like photos of like, uh, you see the classic archetype of like, the, and it's not even classic anymore, I guess it's more contemporary, but you see like these like white girls in the photos with their fucking tattooed arm and they're holding up the black power symbol. Oh, you know yeah. Saying, like, yeah. That's fucking me up on so many levels and I just don't know how to react to it. I see like, I see people trying to be allies, but I just keep going back to that fucking idea that it's too little too late at this point. Yeah. I'm having a, a tough time with it too, you know, and the worst part, cause like, you know, my town's fucking small, man. We got like a hundred K between like our three cities, you know? So that's mm-hmm. nothing. 
And like, I go, so when I go to these rallies, like I see people and I like, like kind of know them and I'm like, yeah, you're holding up a uh, black fist tonight, but I, you were you kind of weren't that cool at the bar. This other dude the other day. And I know you as a server and you're like not chill with the black customer to come in, you know? So I got a lot of, a lot of issues with this stuff, you know, like, man, there are a couple like places like that have like black lives matter in their window. And I'm like, I hope when you get your boards taken out, somebody fucking throws a, a brick through it like two weeks from now when you're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched, like, the, I watched the scene from uh, do the right thing the other day of radio Rahim when he's explaining love and hate. And uh, yeah, you know, you, you see how radio Rahim went out. And it's like, it's just a fucking, like, that's what everybody's, everybody acts all surprised and fucking horrified by, like, George Floyd's death. I wasn't surprised. I was fucking horrified, but I wasn't surprised. Because I have had a cop's knee on the back of my neck. And I have, like, feared for my life in, like, the wrong neighborhood after dark, being in a rich neighborhood, and having Officer D.E. Hill of the Adams County Sheriff's Department um, like basically tell me he was going to kill me if I didn't show him my ID. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I just, yeah. Like I've definitely, like I, I haven't, it, it hasn't escalated that far with me, but I've definitely been stopped just fucking walking around before. And actually I've gotten stopped jogging too. So when I was thinking about the Aubrey with the jogging thing too. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because sorry, not to be an asshole. Like, jogging through like the suburbs for me is like kind of chill because it's flat and quiet you know <laughs> like yeah. i don't want to jog through like midtown you know but like yeah i i wasn't so su- surprised by like what happened with with floyd I, i'm none of these things surprise me anymore like they all horrify me like you said but like yeah not surprised at all no. i know how i know how citizens act i know how cops act yeah i know how i've been treated my entire life essentially yeah like every time like uh like every time like in the suburbs like that especially i'm always worried that somebody's going to be like what are you doing here you know and mm-hmm. walking around in just everyday life whenever i see a cop i'm like are they gonna bother who are they going to bother today am i gonna be the one who gets bothered today because somebody's getting bothered sooner or later exactly 